0: Last week, I started on a series of messages I'm going to be doing for a bit here at Celebration, uh, kind of explaining who we are as a church and what we're about, and to give understanding as to why we do what we do. Now, this is not to uh, force any degree of uh, group think, if you will. Uh, We're not one of these churches that thinks everybody has to think the same. Uh, We don't think there's much credit, quite frankly, to the kingdom of God getting a bunch of people in the room who all think exactly the same, okay? Uh, There's too much of that. That's why there's 400,000 churches in America today. 80% of them have 100 people or less in them because that's about as many people as you can get in one room that all think the same about everything. Uh, We don't push that. We think God is the most glorified when you get a whole bunch of people together who don't agree about a great many things. Who have different political philosophies, different versions of uh, interpretations of the Bible over this, that, or other small doctrines and stuff like that. And we still love and respect each other and are committed to one another and join hand in hand to advance the kingdom of God. That, I think, is the greatest credit. Not to just get a bunch of, you know, mono-thinking people. So the goal here is not to create that... Uh, kind of environment it is to help you understand who we are and why we do what we do Uh, there are things that are very firm for us and non-negotiable most of you just said those words with me in the Apostles Creed. Those are non-negotiable as far as we're concerned. God the Father who created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ his Son, died on the cross for our sins, raised again from the dead, who will return someday. We believe in the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, life eternal, all that stuff. That is non-negotiable to us. We believe that to our very core. There are however lots of other things that affect the life of a church you know, that are debatable and we just you know, don't get psycho crazy about those. And we allow for people who don't agree about every little slight wind of doctrine that comes through the doors. Uh, we just we just don't think in those terms. You know, there's a difference between what we believe and what we think. A lot of what we're trying to share with you is what we think uh, about how we do what we do. Last week, I talked about the structure of the church, how the church is organized, who answers to whom, the board, the elders of the church, all that stuff. If you miss that... Uh, please go online and take a look at it or call the church and you know, stop by the bookstore or whatever and uh, get a DVD or CD of it. If you wonder how it, it all works, we explain it in great detail. There's a great deal of accountability uh, in our church. No one person c- runs around like Mussolini doing whatever he or she wants to do without being accountable. Everything's accountable. Everything from the, every dollar that is spent over to how the church is runs and operates. All of it is done. A system of accountability. So, uh, today we want to continue explaining a little bit of the way that we approach some things. Uh, Now, when we do this, this is not, again, to criticize anyone else. Oftentimes, when you take a position and say, well, this is who we are, then the people who are not that way feel criticized. Well, that's not the point of this. We're not, first of all, we don't know that any of them even listen to us. If they do or not, it doesn't really matter. We're not trying to criticize anybody, we're just trying to explain. Who we are. And again, even within our own congregation, not looking for 100% agreement on all these things. Uh, the purpose of this is not, uh, again, uniformative thinking. It's about understanding. So you understand, oh, that's why we do this, and that's how that starts. Whether you agree with everything or not, that's fine. We don't all have to agree on everything. But we're trying to get you so that we all understand, so that we can be a healthier organization and less inclined to little nitpicky. Complaints and whining that people get and get everybody questioning things. So, today we want to go to the book of Acts. And uh, Acts the second chapter. This is now the day of Pentecost. This is where Christianity is now launched into the world. Uh, we've got the Gospels, or, or talking about the teachings and the life of Jesus. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. How Christianity spread throughout the world. And then the rest of the New Testament is the teachings of the apostles. Okay, so that's what the book of Acts is about. So on the day of Pentecost this is when Christianity is launched. So I thought it was launched at the birth of Jesus. No, not really. I mean, obviously that was all important. Certainly the death and resurrection of Jesus. Completely, absolutely crucial to our experience. But Jesus told his disciples, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Don't talk about nothing. Just wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And then go. So they're waiting. So they're waiting, and they're waiting. They're just hanging out. And the Bible says, on the day of Pentecost, as they were waiting, the Holy Spirit fills this room. They start speaking in tongues. There's all kinds of stuff. It must have been rather dramatic, enough that it drew quite a crowd of people. Now there were a lot of people in town at the time. Uh, this was a devout time of the year. A lot of very devout Jews from all over the world were visiting, and uh, they were stopping by and saying, well, "What? What? What the heck is going on? What is this?" And then we pick it up in verse 11 where Peter is going to address them explain what's going on. So these guys see all this stuff and it says in verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed and they asked each other, what does this mean? And of course some made fun of it, saying "Oh, these guys just had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Clearly, Peter had never been to Wisconsin. <laughs> There's people getting loosed up right now, man, I'm telling you. For, uh, getting ready for the game. Whee! But anyway, he said, it's only nine in the morning. They're not drunk. And he says, no, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now that got their attention. These were very devout Jews. They knew the teachings of the prophets. And Joel was an unusual prophet and spoke of a, a day that was coming that really had their attention. And here's what this is about. In the Old Testament, throughout the whole, that's a big fat part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, this, God would show up and he would find a unique individual and it would become a vessel and God would go through that vessel out to the people. These were the Moses, the Samsons, the King Davids. These were the uh, usual kings and prophets, anointed leaders of the Old Testament that God would come through. And these people were held in great esteem, as they should be. But if you wanted to experience God, you had to get it through uh, certain channels. Well, Joel comes along and he prophesies about the future. He says there is a day coming when God will no longer do that, but that the Spirit of God will fall on every body. And he quotes it here in verse 17. He says, talking about what Joel said, he said, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants. Now, this is a big statement. We're not nearly as keyed into the uh, class struggles that they had thousands of years ago. It's bad enough what we got, you know, but uh, in America, you got rich, poor, and big middle class. But back in this day, I mean, when you were, you know, there were serious, you know, layers of status that you were born into in, in the world and pretty much stayed there your entire life. The bottom of this pool were the servants. Your life really kind of stunk if you were a servant. And everybody got to tell you what to do and push you around. He says, even on my servants. Now stop and think. The only people who would ever experience this were Moses, David, Elijah. But now, Joel says, I'm telling you, even the servants are going to get this. I was like, wow. And that's what he says is going to happen and Peter says, that's what you're seeing right now. And then Christianity spread throughout the world. This was the radical change of Christianity. Now people could experience God, boom, personally. They didn't have to go through anybody. They didn't have to buy it. They didn't have to earn it. The fact that you could come to poor people and slaves of the day and say, you can experience God through Jesus Christ right now. Well, what do I have to do? Do I have to chant? Do I have to pray? Do I have to take class of lessons? Have no. You can experience God right now. That was radical. That everybody could be lifted up, both men and women, which was radical of that day, that women too would receive this anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was a life changer. It was a world changer. That's why Christianity spread like crazy throughout the world and changed the world in which they live. Well, it didn't take too terribly long before some of that started being challenged. You see, we're supposed to have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why in Hebrews it says, Let's, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with, great, with confidence. Other translations say boldness. We can come to God boldly. You don't have to mealy mouth around and hope that someone else can do this for you. You can do it because now the Spirit of God has fallen on everybody. But this idea of direct access to God started to get filtered as Christianity went along. Now, let me say a little, bit of a disclaimer here, and, and I hope you know our hearts, and <laughs> I'm going to talk about the difference between Catholics and Protestants in just a second. Now this is not to slam Catholics. We are not anti-Catholic. I hear people who watch us on television all over the city, and there's a lot of Catholics in this city, and like in Wisconsin, every once in a while I run to somebody who gets really mad because he said something that's different than what Catholics believe. I'm not a Catholic. I got a wife. children, six grandchildren. I'm not a priest. It's not a slam on Catholicism, just we're not, you know, there's Catholics and there's Protestants. Two versions of this deal. There's 18 million versions of Protestants, but it's pretty much just Catholics and Protestants. What happened was, as the church went along, they started creating or adding on filters again in access to God. Now, I'm sure the Catholics in their defense would have explanations for it all. God bless them. Check it out with them. I'm just telling you what it is. For them, that's when the status of the priest became so important. And you had to come to the priest to have access to God. And when you pray, you didn't pray directly to God. You'd pray to saints or talk to his mom or something. You know, some kind of way of getting to, to God because it was like inappropriate. And Protestants looking at the New, te- New Testament said, no, that's not the way this is supposed to be. Uh, because there's nowhere in the Bible that ever says to do any of that stuff. Zilch, not a zip. And Catholics know this. In their defense, what they say is they believe God revealed it to them further down the road, through popes and stuff like that, and the cardinals, and they discover that. The- okay, as Protestants, we disagree. That's why you have Catholics. And you goes, Protestants, we don't hate each other, at least I don't hate anybody. Uh, that's one of the fundamental differences. As Protestants, we still believe that everybody can have direct access to God. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to pray to a cousin or something uh, on the way hoping they can stop by and drop off a note at God's secretary's office that maybe as he gets time, he gets to hear from you. Are you hearing me? We get to approach boldly to God directly through Jesus Christ. Jesus said these words: "I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody can come to God except through me. He is the only way, directly to God. If that takes you off, right to Lathan Duncan. <laughs> Green Bay, Wisconsin. All right. Now. Before all the Protestants start feeling all oh, where yeah, we, we have to work, actually. I, I, I wanna challenge, because this is where I'm going with all this. I think Protestants have, at times, gotten caught into the same idea of, in a sense, filtering access to God. Uh, and the ones who are probably the most guilty of it are from the Pentecostal or charismatic side of the equation of which I was raised, so I know this extremely well. It's not a slam on anybody, but it's just a reality check, okay? This is where we've come up with the idea of the man of God having the great anointing praise God. It's the man of God, you know. And there are, in fact, people who feel uncomfortable in a church like ours because they don't have direct access to me. It bothers them because they can't have direct access to me. They feel that somehow they're being cheated out of something, clearly They don't know me. (laughs) You ain't missing out on Jack, all right? But there's this idea of the past. They're almost as guilty. And the reason we don't have a big emphasis on those kinds of thinking is we don't think in those terms. We believe the Spirit of God is available to everybody. You all have the same direct access to God as I have or Bob or Lathan or anybody else. Now, there are spiritual giftings in the church that we do acknowledge. And there are the roles of pastors, elders, and apostles, whatever. Okay, we understand that, and and that's fine, seeking out some gift. But it's not about that. You get to connect with God. You don't need anybody else to do it. Now, I still haven't gotten to the point of my message. (laughs) The point of the message that I want to talk about is, it has to do with the music part of the service. One of the things that has happened that I think has become uh, unhealthy in the evangelical church is this overwhelming emphasis on the music portion of the service because that has been redefined now as worship. In fact, if you talk to people uh, about music see, when we all grew up some of you geezers like me, you know, in the church the music was called the music service. Right? We sang from the hymns, it was the music. We didn't call it wor- now we call it worship. The music is called the worship. And the music team is called the worship team. And these are the people who come before the Lord with a great anointing and a great gifting. And how God uses them and flows through them to the people. And I'm telling you that's false. That is not the way this works. That is an Old Testament model. And we don't live in the Old Testament. It is not a New Testament model. God, worship does not come through the musicians unto you. Worship emanates from you to God. The musicians are there to help encourage you, to build you up, to create an environment where you can connect with God. But it is not this, like some holy filter of the office of musician. Now, I'm a musician. I'm not slamming musicians. Most of you know I'm a musician. I spent decades of my life. Uh, serving as a musician in churches and I get it and I know what all of this is but this idea has somehow gotten out of control to the point quite frankly if there would be no preaching today and no offering and no prayer but we just sang the entire service there would be people who would leave our celebration campus and go man that was amazing boy did we worship today Praise God! Yes, I still got my money too. That's awful. <laughs> Truly awesome. But if at the beginning of the service I would have gotten up, and said, "All right, sit down, and shut up. I'm going to preach for the next hour and a half." People would left leave here, and they would say, "You know, we didn't worship today." You know that's exactly. And a lot of you think that way, and that's why I'm talking to you. It's bad thinking it is stinking thinking singing is not worship worship is not singing worship singing can be a part of worship and we still sing and we believe in singing All it's all great and it's fabulous but it is not the definition of worship people say well we need to have worship nights pastor but we just no we have worship it's called sunny morning we get together and we worship god those are singing nights. Nice. I'm not against those, but it's, it's, it's as if we don't worship unless we spend the next 45 minutes singing the same song over and over and over again till we pass out and fall on the ground. That is not worship. It can be part of worship. In fact, if you look up worship, the definition of worship, you'll find there's no mention of music at all. It's all worship. The prayer, the reverence to God, the giving, the sacrifice, the serving, the singing the preaching, it's all part of the worship experience. Now, all of that to get to my final major point, <laughs> which is this, the idea that the church, every church needs an anointed worship leader. <laughs> that it's the anointed worship leader that brings us into the presence of God. Is Unbiblical. Well, it's a biblical sense of the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. We have built up in many churches, particularly again from the charismatic side, and who've built up this idea that the worship leaders is great, you know, with the pastor of worship, the minister of worship. Many churches have pastors of worship. But there's no place in the Bible, in the New Testament, that talks about that at all. Not in the New Testament. The worship leader is not part of the fivefold ministry of pastor, elder, teacher, evangelist. We've created something that is not there. Because we put this huge emphasis. And if it's it's totally important, the right person be there. And that's because of this Old Testament thinking that it emanates from the vessel. (laughs) To all of you. And I'm telling you it's not. Now, you don't have to agree with me. I'm just telling you as a way to explain. This is why we do what we do. We don't think in those terms. We believe worship emanates from you to God. We are here to assist in that. The spiritual status of our singers and musicians is of little concern. They're up here for one reason and one reason only: they can sing or they can play. That's it. They are not more spiritual. They are not on the same status as an elder in the church. They are not, by definition, uh, leaders. They are not. They don't have to have the same status uh, as a pastor. We don't think in those terms in any way, shape, or form. Now, I have friends throughout the world, especially in charismatic and churches, who would disagree with me highly. They never let anyone onto the platform unless they're truly dedicated, committed, baptized, speaking in tongue full of the Spirit, holy disciples of Christ. Well, fine. That's their call and that's their decision. I think they err because they get this idea of like this going through, which I think is faulty. But we don't think in those terms because we don't view it in that way. Again, this is a matter of explanation, not trying to convince anybody of anything. This is why we do what we do. We have people at times who are on some of our music teams, and I've told our pastors, quit calling them worship teams and quit calling the music worship. It's not worship, it's part of worship. Hard to break the habit after 20 years, but... We have people in some of our music teams. Some of them, we ask them to come and play. for we need a bass player, we'll call some. We can't get it, uh, our normal guys, can't find it. We'll call some guy who maybe plays in bars, not a Christian at all, to come and play. Again, I know pastors, hell would have to freeze over before they would allow that to happen. We do it. We don't think twice about it. Why? It's not about them. It's not about them. It's about you worshiping God. There is no special anointing on them. I will say this. There are, if you talk to some of these guys, there are several musicians in the Celebration Campus world who came to this church as unbelievers, playing in our worship services, got touched by the Spirit of God, heard the Word of God, responded to Christ, are now very committed followers of Christ. Which is kind of the point, right? We should get people in and influence them. But we don't do this. So if you ever wonder, you know, gee, who's that person up there? And are they of the right spiritual, you know, pedigree? We don't think in those terms. That's why we do what we do. Again, if that's really important to you, obviously this may not be the place for you, but we just don't think in those terms. It's not about who's up here. And by the way, I hate to break your bow, but you know those beautiful recordings you listen to on your CDs and on the Christian radio stations, whether they be hymns or funky contemporary songs? Do you think all those musicians that you're listening to on those recordings are Christians? You're delusional. I've been to these studios. Some of them are extremely well-experienced (laughs) heathens. They're just incredible musicians. These orchestras that you listen to, I promise you, overwhelmingly are made up of pagans who are playing because they pay them to play. And they play your hymns in such a way that makes tears stream down your face. Is that not real? No, it's real to you because you are worshiping God. doesn't matter about the vessel. This idea that the vessel has to be something, something holier is just patently wrong. And the evidence, the anecdotal evidence that this is bogus, is with throughout Christianity, time would fail me to tell of the worship leaders and the people who would get up and sing and the presence of God would fill the place only to find out that the guy was committing adultery the entire time. Lying, stealing, cheating the entire time. One of the greatest examples happened recently out of Hillsong's in... Australia, a lot of you guys know who they are. They're one of the leaders in worship music in the world today. They had a man, I'll refrain from his name. I have it written here, but I'll cut him some slack. In 2006, he was one of their worship people, you know. In 2006, he announced to everyone he had cancer and was dying of cancer. And he would get up there and sing. And as he would sing, the Spirit of God would come over the people and they would respond mightily to God. He wrote a song called Healer. People would talk of how they experienced miracles when this guy would sing and how the meetings were overflowing with the power of God. They'd have to help him get up there to the microphone stand and, you know, oxygen around his nose and and he's bald and, and he's trying to, you know... Is he suffering from this horrible cancer, worshiping God. Oh, what a powerful vessel. Oh, what great anointing. Oh, Pastor Mark, can't we get anointed men of God like that? Only to find out in 2008, he'd lied the entire time. He was never sick. Sick in the head. But had no cancer. It was all totally and completely bogus. Of course, Hillsong's panics, they quick take him off as a pastor in their church and remove his recordings, which had driven their records to the top of the lists and took a huge financial loss over it. Quick under the rug and just went on and still encouraging these vessels. Hello. If the vessel's so important, how do you explain that? Did these people in flag worship God? Yeah. Did people actually experience miracles? If they say so, yeah. Well, how can they do that? If there's a guy up there who's lying the entire time just doing it for his own attention because it's not about the vessel. I've got other names I can mention. I'll spare us all. This idea that we can only experience God if the right combination of people are up here is bogus. Worship emanates from here to God. What we want to do is have the best musicians that we can to lift that up, but it's never about them. It's always about you. It's always about us worshiping God. Well, Pastor, when when, when we do sing, I, I feel I feel, I feel so great and so blessed. Of course, you do, but it's more of a soul blessing. There's a thing called soul type worship. You know, we're body, soul, spirit. Soul is our emotions. You get together and you sing, and it's a great song, and there's this lifting, and it's OK. the Bible says, "Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. We should come in here and worship God, soul, body and spirit. But don't think because you're having a soul experience that is somehow deep, some deep spiritual experience. The soul experience in many churches that worshiping is not all that different, and this will offend some is not all that different than a bunch of people at a concert holding hands with 5,000 people, at a Paul McCartney concert going, na, 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 hey, Jude. If you've ever been in a place like that, you know there's quite a rush. It's a soul experience. It's very pleasant. It's very appealing. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it in the church, but don't think you're spiritual because you sing. pastor the singing is important in the Bible and the Old Testament talks a lot about it in the New Testament there's only one time it even mentions that Jesus sang with his disciples one time so they sang one song and they moved on if singing was in essence the center of worship why would Jesus and his disciples not spend hours singing unto God they didn't do it well pastor what about Paul and Silas when they were singing at night and, and a miracle came and set them free truly it did and we are supposed to sing The Bible says it's important to sing. Even the New Testament. But of all the miracles in the New Testament, that's the only one that is preceded by singing. No one is saying it's not important. I'm saying it's important. It's valuable. We'll always value it here. But what we're not going to do is define it as somehow worship and the rest of this is not. Nor will we lift up the singers and musicians as some. Uniquely holy vessels that some of you hope to attain to it someday. They are not. Nor will we have some special filter on them that if they don't attain a certain part, they can't partake. We're not going to do that because it's not about them. It's never been about them. Now we try to get the most talented, God loving people we can to do this, but it'll always be about you because why? It has changed. We now live in a day where the Spirit of God has been poured out upon all flesh. You don't need to be a pastor, Mark, to experience God. You can experience God right now. You don't even have to be here. You can be in Appleton and experience God right now. You can be in Stevens Point, and God can touch you right now, even though you're away from my beautiful body. (laughs) Because it's not about these vessels. We want to be the best vessels we can. But a new day has come, and it came 2,000 years ago where everything changed. Because he said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my servants and my handmaidens. I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord, and they shall prophesy. The glory of this is that we all get to be these vessels of God. Pots. Some of you are cracked pots, but but we're pots nonetheless. And it's when we all live out that kind of experience, I'm telling you, that is when the power of God's going to show up and do some incredible things. We've got to get away from this thinking that it seems Christians for the last 2,000 years have always wanted to slip back into is that there's got to be this filter of the special holy ones first before we get to God. That is not true.